All right, thank you for that good singing. Thank you, musicians. I appreciate your good work this morning. Please take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of 1 John. Please keep your Bibles open there as we'll be looking at several verses in the book of 1 John. You know, John is responsible for writing several books of our New Testament. The Gospel of John, where he emphasizes our need to be sons of God by believing on the Son of God. And then when he gets to his three epistles here, he deals with us as sons of God. I want you to look with me in 1 John chapter number 3. The subject again this morning will be the subject of sin. This morning we'll look at 1 John chapter 3, sin and the sons of God. Look in chapter number 3. Now, if you read through 1 John, and I'm sure most of you have read through your Bible, and especially your New Testament. And when you get to 1 John, I encourage you to highlight or mark each time that John makes a reference to the word sin, sinneth, sins, and sinned. And in five chapters, you will find him speaking about sin 27 times times in five chapters, 27 times in five chapters. You cannot read through the book of 1 John without sin coming across the page and him dealing with it in our lives. And so I want you to look with me in 1 John chapter 3. Now, the Word of God says in verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And when he says, what manner, it was like when Jesus was walking upon the water and they said, what manner of man is this? What they meant by that was this manner that this is unusual, this is unique, this is out of this world. And so when you look at the word here, when it says, what manner of love, you're talking about a love that's unique, it's not fleshly, it's not earthly. It's not something that man produces or can reproduce. It is something that is unique, that comes from heaven, that is from God. God is love. Now, our world has hijacked that word to change some of its meanings and implications. But God is what He is, and God is love. And the Bible says, What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It's important when you read through the book of 1 John that you always pay attention to those pronouns about us and they and them because that is critical of who he's referring to and who he's talking to and about. So when you read verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be able to know that I am a child of God this morning. What a blessing that is. Not that I'm going to be, but that I am a child of God, a son of God. And in the writing of this book, he had a couple of things in mind in his goal. One was that the sons of God might have their lives full of joy. Chapter 1 says, I write these things unto you that your joy may be full. He didn't want to just bring boys and 
girls into the kingdom of God just to try to fight their way in miserably all the way till they get to glory. But he wanted them to be full of joy. Now, is it a blessing to parents when your children are happy? And when they have some joy, doesn't it make you happy when they're excited and when they're encouraged and when they're doing well? And so John also wanted them to know for sure. He said, I've written these things unto you that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Can a person know in their heart that they are saved and that they're sons of God and that they're children of God and that they have and possess eternal life? Man, what a blessing that is to be able to lay your head down at night and to know that if you died in your sleep, if you are in a car accident and you hit somebody head on and you stepped off into eternity, that you would know in your heart where for sure that you would be headed. That's an awesome, that's an awesome thing to know. You say, well, Brother Roger, you, you can't know. John said, I'm writing these things so that you may know. You say, well, you can't be sure. John says, I'm writing these things so that you might have confidence that you might know, that you might be sure, that you might have a no-so salvation. Now, John understands also that there's always ditches on both sides of every... If you've ever tried to teach anything in the Bible and did any serious study, your mind is going to have to do some investigating on all of the Scriptures, not just the one that you're looking at. And you'll find that there's always ditches on both sides of every divine truth. And so you're going to have to do your very best to let the Word of God interpret itself. Now when you say, well, I don't believe a person can know for sure that they're saved, and if they are saved, I don't think that they can know for sure that they'll always be saved. Do we believe here that the Bible teaches once saved, always saved? Well, let's make sure that we understand the word saved. Okay, I didn't say once you make a profession of faith. I said, once you are saved, you are always saved. If you are saved to begin with and you've truly been born again, you're not going to be unborn again. And for you to think otherwise, then you're going to be a miserable and nervous wreck by the time that you die because you, you are underestimating how hideous and sinful we really are. At what point do you fall out of being a child of God? You're measuring sin based on your conscience and your standards. You're not basing upon them how hideous it is to God. Now watch this. Look in chapter 3. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not. And he said in verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Thank God there's some no-so things. Verse 3, and listen carefully. Every man that hath this hope in him, every man, every man that is born again, every man that is a son of God, every child of God that hath this hope in him, purifieth himself even as he is pure. Now watch this, verse 4. These are some very strong verses here. I mean, they are very, very strong. Black and white. You've got to understand what they mean and the seriousness therein. He says, Whosoever committeth sin. 
transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that He, talking about Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And in Him is no sin. And whosoever abideth in Him sinneth not. And whosoever sinneth hath not seen Him, neither known Him. That's some pretty strong words, wouldn't you say? Now, when you look at that and you think, well, man, I must not be saved because, man, I still struggle, I still sin. I mean, I don't know who is saved. Well, let's look at it now. Let's let the Bible interpret itself, okay? He said, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. And he that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested. Again, he's given us the reason why Jesus came. Verse 5, was to take away our sins. Verse 8, was that he might destroy the works of the devil. Are you reading the same Bible I am? Do you see what he says here? And verse 9. Wow, he says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. So is there a distinction? Is there a difference? Between someone who is actually a child of God and someone who is still a child of the devil. Now you're either one of the two. There is no in between. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children are the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness, talking about sin, is not of God. Neither is he that loveth not. His brother. Today there is so much imbalance for the sake of growth or of control over a congregation. You have some over here who make very light of sin, make much of grace light of sin. Turn the grace of God into lasciviousness for the sake of growth. Over here you have another group that keeps people controlled by fear. And controls them by the doubt of their salvation and always having to repeat their professions of faith. And so there's fear factor. Now, the Lord's not for either one of these. He is for you to to be saved, to be delivered from... Let's put it like this. John is dealing with the fact that there are two major birthmarks of a child of God. For he is confident of God's power to save from sin and to deliver us from sin. Do you understand what I just said? I need God to forgive me of my transgressions. But I need God also to help me to deal with this sin nature that I have to live with until he comes back. I need help in both areas. 
So the root of my problem is that I need to be saved, born again. And that's where it comes to my confession of the Son of God. He's my only hope to be forgiven. Do you agree with that? What you say about Jesus matters. What you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart will determine your destiny. For example, look in chapter 4. Look in verse number 13. The Bible says this, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him. Again, it's no so. Verse 13, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. All right? When you got saved, He sent the Spirit to dwell in your heart. Verse 14, That Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is going to testify in you of Jesus. Verse 14 says, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Do you believe that? Do you testify of that? If we ask you to give a testimony in a mixed group of religions, if you were at Congress and they ask you to come on the day of prayer, and there are multitudes of religions, and they ask you, you could say whatever you wanted to say. Would you be willing to stand up and testify that Jesus was sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world? And look at verse 15. Then would you confess that Jesus is not only the Savior, but He's the Son of God. And God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. When it talks about the word confess, Brother Tucker, when you read it through the book of 1 John, it just simply means, Brother Travis... Are you willing to consistently say the same things about Jesus that God's record says about Jesus? Does anybody can use the name Jesus? But are you willing to testify and confess and believe the record that God has left of His Son? For example, John said that Jesus Christ in Him was no sin. So if you find somebody that talks about a Jesus who did sin, that's not the Jesus that John's talking about. Right? Okay, so we're talking about the true Son of God. Are you willing to confess that before men? When somebody comes and they say, Brother Roger, I'd like to be saved, we encourage them to understand that Jesus died for them on the cross, that God raised Him from the dead, that God gave His Son for the propitiation of their sins, that they must believe upon Him and call upon Him, and in doing so, believing upon Him with all of their heart under righteousness. But after that, then we ask them to identify themselves with this confession. Amen? Identify yourself with this confession. Are you willing then to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, identifying with that, with that Savior who died and was raised again from the dead? You say, well, I, I'm embarrassed and I'm a little shy about that. Well, let me ask you a question. How would your wife feel about it if you were shy and intimidated, embarrassed to wear your wedding ring work so that people would know that you have committed yourself to one woman and that you're not ashamed of her. I think probably that she would give you an attitude adjustment when you got home. That's what I'm thinking. That she would show you that there's multi-purposes for a frying pan. Do you understand that John says your confession of your faith is critical? 
But look in chapter 2, verse 29 as well. That's the root. Getting saved, God deals with my, the root of my problem, which is my heart, and my heart needs to be changed. Now He's going to deal with the fruit. Verse 29 says, If you know that He is righteous, talking about Jesus, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. So my conduct, one has to do with my confession, which secures my salvation. My conduct reveals my salvation. Do you understand? It reveals that I've got something that's real. He came to change. Look at chapter 3 with me again. Verse number 5. I need you to see this. The Lord Jesus Christ came to change my eternal destination. Verse 5 says, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins. Jesus said, If you believe not that I am He, you will die in your sins. Verse 8 says that He also came to change my earthly direction of my walk and my conduct. Verse 8 says, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. And in our glorification of grace and the mercy and the love of God and His willingness to forgive all sin and all sinners, we praise God for that. We sing songs about it. We rejoice in it. But even when Jesus had great mercy and great grace upon someone, such as the woman taken in adultery, He said, Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. And a man that He healed, He said, Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. So it implies to me that when Jesus does something special for you, He's also interested in changing you, that you would not continue to live like the devil, but that you would live like a child of God. But we all struggle with sin. But when you get to chapter 3 and you look at this, you understand John said that God is. Twice he says God is. Brother John, he said God is light and God is love. And because of what he is, Brother Lauren, sin is a very hideous thing to him. He's light and him is no darkness. He is love. In Him is no selfishness. I want you to think with me for just a moment if you can. God is so holy and light and love and good. And sin is so hideous to Him. If you could imagine the absolute worst smell that turns your stomach and robs your appetite. Has anything ever come across your path? Years ago, Cindy had a, a fairly new vehicle. I think it was a, it was some kind of a small SUV. I can't remember. The, a, it was a Ford. And one of the kids had left a package of fish in the car. Do you know how hot it gets in Texas? And the windows are rolled up. And there's some fish left in your car. 
And when you open the door, you don't have to guess that there's something wrong. And no matter how many Christmas trees you hang from the mirror, it doesn't change anything. Do you understand? It was hideous. You couldn't get in it and travel in it. It smelled so bad. Is there anything that you've ever run across that just about almost made you throw up? This is what sin smells like to God. Imagine the most grievous scene your eyes could behold to the point of where it causes you to pull over and vomit or pass out. That is how hideous sin is to God. One of the most gross explanations of sin in the Word of God is leprosy. Leprosy starts on the inside. It works its way out and begins to eat away at the members of your body. And before it does that, it begins these putrefying pus comes out of your skin. And that's why lepers have to wear rags. And God said, if you think that you're so hot and you think you're so good, He said, I want to tell you what I think about your righteousness. He said, if you were to take some rags and you were to wipe all that pus off those lepers and you were to offer those rags to me, that's your righteousness in my sight. It is offensive to God for you to think you could enter heaven without the righteousness of Jesus Christ to your account. So when you think about when John says sin, boy, we're talking about things that are that, that turn God's stomach. The Bible uses the word abominable, abomination, for example. This is Pride Month in America, of which I'm ashamed of what's going on in America concerning those particular types of wickedness. But the Bible says that these are some things that God considers to be abominable. For example, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. God knows your thoughts. He knows your imaginations. And when they're wicked, it makes him sick to his stomach. We can't see what's going on inside of you, but he does. Arrogancy, pride. And of course, we know that sodomy and transgenderism is a stench and abomination in the eyes of God. You say, well, where do you get that from? I get it from the same place I got pride and arrogancy. I got it from the Bible. As a matter of fact, when God got ready to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels told Abraham that we've got to go check this out because... He said, what's going on down there is a very grievous thing in the sight of God. I saw a little clip of a sodomite pastor who tried to explain away the judgment of God upon Sodom and Gomorrah and said the reason why God judged them was because of their bad hospitality. Some of us would sure enough be in trouble. If that were the case, but I am saying to you, that's not what happened. God wants a man to be a man, a woman to be a woman, and not to try to change him over. God hates that. He knows what it does to, to you mentally. And God's love. God doesn't want you going in a direction because it hurts you and it hurts people. So sin is harmful to, to us and to others. It deceives us. It hides itself. I want our young people to understand that You can try to hide sin, and sin will try to hide itself, but it always works its way out. 
It always does. It starts inwardly and it'll work its way out. And it'll appear such a small thing and a harmless thing, but it always works its way out and hurts you and hurts those around you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Please take me seriously. Don't, don't let your mind drift. The Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man. And a fool trusts in his own heart. And sin is so deceptive and so destructive. I don't know if you have heard about this situation, but there was a young man by the name of Daniel Brandon. He was 31 years of age when he died. He lived in New Hampshire. But he decided one day to bring home from the pet store a female African rock python. And he named it Tiny. And the reason why he named it Tiny was because it was so small that he could put it in the palm of his hand. And he raised that baby python. And over time, it began to continue to grow and grow and grow until one day at the age of 31, his mother heard a thump, a noise in her son's bedroom, and she went in there, and sure enough, you know what happened. The nature of that python took over, and that python attacked its owner who had fed it since it was a baby and petted it since it was a baby, but it began to grow, and that python had wrapped itself around that young man and had taken his life. And that's what sin does. See, you think that you can do certain things and keep petting that sin, and you, and, but it's growing incrementally. It's not growing a foot a day. Right. Had that snake grown one foot per day, that boy would have been alarmed. But because it grew inches and just even less than inches per day, and ap- appeared to be his friend for a while, eventually the nature of that serpent comes out. Right. And you and I really were born with some of those serpents in our hearts. And and they're going to come out one way or the other. You just got to learn to cut their heads off as quick as you can when they come. But I want to say to you young people, listen, you, you you can't fool around with, you can't play around with sin and think that one day it's not going to hurt you and to hurt your family. I'm just saying this the way it is. Look at me. You can't be friends with fools. And be wise and successful on your journey in life. That's a serpent you're petting that's going to grow on you and it's going to bite you and it's going to hurt you. Your friends, your friends are like elevators. They'll take you up or they'll take you down. You can't walk with wise men and if you, you can't walk with fools and be a wise man. You can't do that and be successful. They'll bring bad habits into your life. They'll bring things into your life that you never intended to be there. They'll persuade you to do things in your weak moments that you never thought that you would do just to fit in. You young men and young ladies, you cannot play on that phone and continue to look at pornography or something close to pornography. You can't take fire in your bosom and not be burned. It's impossible. You're petting a serpent and it's going to grow on you. You say, well, that's like, what's that got to do with First John? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look in chapter 3 with me, please. Look and see what he says here about this. See, when God saves you, if you're born again, it, it is, and I'm going to explain this to you now very carefully. 
It is possible that a Christian can sin. We're all proof of that. We know that. But how do you fit that in with these verses? All right, let's look and see what John meant by this. When he said in verse number 6 of chapter 3, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, and whosoever sinneth hath not seen him. Verse 8, He that committeth sin, for the devil sinneth. Verse 9, Who is born of God doth not commit sin. All right? Now, either John means something specific here, or he's contradicting some other things that he has said in his previous chapters here. But I think it's very clear to me. It's very clear to me. First of all, let's establish the fact that it is proof and possible for a child of God to sin. All right. You'll notice in chapter number number two, look in verse number one. Very clear, very black and white, very, very true. Chapter two, verse one. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. It is God's will that we do not sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And of course, chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that us, He is referring to, are the children of God. Look with me, please, in chapter 5. Look with me, if you would, in verse number 16. Another very clear passage of Scripture about sin in our hearts and lives that we must deal with. Chapter 5, verse 16. He says, if any man see his brother, if any man see his brother, what? Sin. Is it possible for you and I to see a brother sin a sin? So that means it's possible for a brother to sin. But it says, notice the singularity of that. It says, if a man see a brother sin a sin. Here's the difference. And it's a very clear difference. The children of the devil, they not only commit a sin, they continue to commit sin. They pursue sin. They go after sin. They love sin. They drink of it. They eat of it. They think of it. They live for it. They abide in it. That is the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil. That if you can sin, my friend, and your heart not condemn you, and your conscience not be troubled, there is a very serious heart issue that's going on inside of you. And you're going to have to see this very clearly and judge yourself, basically. But notice what he says here in chapter 5. If a man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life. For them that sin not unto death. That's a pretty serious statement. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not unto death. Wow. 
If any man be in Christ, do you agree that he is a new creature? So God begins to change His direction and His desires. John says you'll begin to love light over darkness. That you'll begin to move toward more love than you will hate. That you will begin to walk in truth and despise lies and error. And that you will pursue righteousness over sin and transgressions. But I find in me another law called the law of sin. I confess to you that I wish to God that I would never, ever, 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 ever grieve the Lord again the rest of my days. I wish that I would never have a foolish thought. I wish that every time that I knew to do good, that I would do it. I wish that pride would not come up in me. I wish that I was never selfish. I wish that I could deal with everything that comes out of a man's heart. I wish that it would never come out again. But I find in me this law of sin that still lives with me. But John says, listen to me, son. He said, look, he said that there's something that God put in you that's a greater law than the law of sin. If I were, I used this a little bit last week, I think you understand the law of gravity, correct? And, and, and it's like Brother, Brother Byer left last night at 8 o'clock to go to Australia. And there was no way that Brother Byer could get to Australia in the air on his own. He could jump. It would take a few jumps to get to Australia. And you'd have to swim a lot to get there, but the human body could not do it. Could not do it alone. But there was a law that was greater than the law of gravity. And he took advantage of that law that was greater than the law of gravity. He got into something. He had to commit himself to something called an airplane that overcomes the law of gravity, the law of aerodynamics. So when he stepped into that airplane and he committed himself to the pilot, he said, I'm going to trust you to get me to the other side. And so sure enough, that law began to overcome the law of gravity. And yet that plane, I mean, if you ever watch some of those monstrosity of airplanes that land at the airport, it's amazing. It looks like if you're over there at the mall, if you're over there close to the airport, it looks like they're just barely hanging in the sky. But they are slowly because of their laws they're able to overcome. And I'm glad that they are. Now God put in you something that is greater than He that is in the world. According to 1 John, greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. Greater. Do you hear what I said? Greater. Greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. And He also uses the term overcome. Comer. You and I can overcome, and we can, we, we can, I guess, here, here's what I guess I'm trying to get you to see. There are no sinless believers, but all believers 
are sin-less than children of the devil. Did you get that? You should be sinning less than an unbeliever. You should be pursuing righteousness. Sin may overtake you from time to time, but you are trying to get away from it. The sinner and the child of the devil, he's looking for it. He's pursuing it. And so here in John, he makes it very clear that he says again, look in verse chapter 3, verse number 7. Are you all still with me? Okay, I know this is more teaching than preaching, but, you know, sometimes you just need teaching. Chapter 3, verse 7. He said, little children. John is being so gentle to us. He said, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Now, it appears to me so that when we're born again, we're babes in Christ, God works in our hearts to make us more like Christ consistently and consistently and more like Him that we might overcome sin in our hearts and in our lives. Okay, so Brother Roger, how, how do I apply this? How do I get help from God? Well, He didn't leave us to ourselves. I thank, you, I thank God for that. He left you some friends and some helpers, and they're all right here in this book. Let me, let me go over them real quickly with you. For example, look in chapter 2, verse number 1. First of all, you have to understand that Jesus Christ truly is the answer to our sin issues. He really is. It is through Him that we have access to God for our salvation. It is through Him that we have access to God for our restoration when we fail. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children... These things write unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The emphasis is upon Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse number 10 says, God sent Him to be the propitiation for our sins. So there is the possibility, first of all, that all of my sins can be forgiven. Number two, that when I sin from this point forward, that they also can be forgiven, but it's all through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Then notice something else about God. If you'll notice in chapter 2, verse number 20, now you've heard of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. This is really His dispensation. This is Christ in us. John the Baptist had his ministry. The Lord Jesus had his ministry. And now we are in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It grieves me when I see some clips sometimes of people who say that they are filled with the Spirit of God. And the things that they do are just unbelievable. I mean, you know, the Spirit of God is not going to make you act like a weirdo. He's going to make you act like Christ. We've got a little dog who misbehaves. Every once in a while, and please don't, don't come up here and lecture me after services. Some, we had to put a shock collar on him, okay? And so every once in a while, he gets zapped. All right? And when he gets zapped, he, he jumps pretty good. He'll, he'll jump. I told Cindy she ought to put it on that highest level and flip him real good from time to time. 
give him an attitude adjustment. But he's jerking around like, what happened? And when people talk about being filled with the Spirit of God, I've seen some clips in churches where people and women are jerking around like they're having seizures. Now, I'm here to tell you, and I'm not telling you, I'm a sensitive man to the Holy Ghost. I would not blaspheme Him. I'm, I want to be filled with the Spirit of God. I want to walk in the Spirit of God. I fear Him. He's not going to make you a fool. He's going to make you more like Christ. And if you're filled with the Spirit of God, there's not going to have to be men up here at the pulpit and around, the, around this podium with blankets to cover you up because you're immodest. Because you're falling around with your skirt coming up. You understand? It's stupid. You say, that's a mean word. Okay. It's dumb. That's a Bible word. He's not going to make you do things that make you look like a fool. He's not like that. He makes you more like Christ. More like Christ. At the same time, the Holy Spirit is not going to make you like a piece of wood. Amen, Brother Roger. You're not going to be like that old Elijah in that song where you're like a wooden Indian sitting on a porch of a store. I'm just simply saying the Spirit of God brings life. And He brings victory. Chapter 2, verse number 20. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, I have. When I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'll take you to the book of Acts where some received Him after they believed on Christ. Yes, you're going to the book of Acts, a book of transition of where things were happening to be signs to the Jew. And if you, get, if you don't get that in your mind, you're going to have a messed up, messed up doctrine and expectations that are not realistic. Verse 20, but, but if you have an unction, that unction is the Holy Spirit in you. All right, look in chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing which you have received of Him abideth in you, that is the Spirit of God. When somebody says, do you have an unction? Yes. Do you have an anointing? Yes. Am I always filled with the Spirit? No. I would to God that I was. The Bible also refers to Him as the witness. He bears witness and testifies of Christ. Look in chapter 3, verse number 24. Look at the end of that verse. The second part of the verse where it starts and says, And he says, And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. He's given you propitiation, an advocate through Jesus Christ and the propitiation of his blood. He's given you the Holy Ghost to live inside of you. And He's given you the Word of God. Look in chapter 2, verse number 14. Do you want to overcome sin? You're going to have to quit laying that Bible aside. If you want to overcome sin, you're going to have to love that Bible more than you love that remote control. Or that telephone. Or that video game. It's like a man who says, man, I sure would like to have this or have that. I wish I had more money, but he's not willing to work for it. So he wants somebody else to bring it to him and do it for him. The nursery is in the next building. Do you understand? If you want to overcome, show yourself to be a man. Show yourself to be a woman. 
Accept some personal responsibility. Look in chapter number 2 and verse number 14. He says, I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abideth in you and you have overcome the wicked one. David said what? Thy word. Young folks, I believe y'all probably know this verse, don't you? Thy word have I hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against God. There is power in the word of God. Power in the word of God. And God's given it to you. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Ghost. You have the scriptures. You have the promise of his return. In chapter number 2, verse number 28, look at this. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence that not be ashamed before him and his coming. Boy, if you really believed he was coming, you'd think about some of the stuff that you're doing. (laughs) If you really thought that he might appear today, you might get some things rearranged and do some things differently in your life if you really believed that he was returning. That's why he said in chapter 3, look over there if you would please in verse number 3. He said, every man, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. But I got some other things going on for me. Look at chapter 5, verse 16 again and I'm done. Look at this. I got a couple more things right here in this one verse. I got people praying for me. There are people that are looking at you, watching you, worried about you. That's right. And they're praying for you because they know you're you're dabbling in stuff that's going to hurt you and hurt your family and hurt others. They know that. They can see it. And rather than broadcasting it and rather than telling everybody about it, they're going to God in the closet and they're asking God to touch your heart and to help you and to take away any pleasure of sin or opportunity for it. Look in chapter 5. Look what he says in verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall what? What is that? Is that prayer? He's asking God. You can intercede for a brother who's getting off track. We need to pray one for another. And others will pray for us. But the second thing in this verse is your Heavenly Father's faithfulness to discipline you when you don't respond to His tenderness. His dealings with you are going to become a little bit more, what can I say, stern. And they go from the point of being stern to possibly being severe. There's no father in here who wishes to be severe with his sons and his daughters. If he takes pleasure in being severe with his children, he's a warped dad. And he's no reflection of God the Father, who is patient with his sons. Gentle, remembers that they are but dust. He knows us. And so, he says in verse 16, If any man see his brother sin a sin and done unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. You see, what's the sin unto death? And I know many of you probably think that that's blasphemy or against the Holy Ghost, and I'm certainly not going to deny that. But I will say this, I think that God knows where that line is, and I think you and I do not know where that line is in every believer's life. 
But here's the way I know about God, Brother Travis. I know Him. I know how He works. I want to be like Him as a father as much as I can. God comforts His children and God chastens His children. Every son that God receives, He chastens. He says, if you do not receive chastening from the Lord, you are a bastard. You do not belong to God. God looks after His sons. Get that down. God develops His sons and God disciplines His sons. And God delivers His sons. He's for you. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Alright, so here's what's going to happen. God's put the Spirit of God in you. He's given you the Word of God. He's given you a pastor. He's given you people in your church that pray for you. And so when you do something that's stupid and wrong and people know about well, first of all, you know about it. When you sin against God, God's going to deal with you privately. Oh, He is good about that. He is not interested in humiliating you and embarrassing you. He wants you to make it right. Get right with Him. Confess it. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Say, Brother Roger, I've I struggle with this thing so many times and I've asked him to forgive me 10 times in the past 10 months. You just keep asking him. When you fail, you keep asking him and then you look for some ways to change some of the things that you're doing. Amen? You're doing something that's allowing that to be repeated in your life. You're doing some things. You need to change some things. Did you know that the Lord expects me to forgive if my brother sins against me and he comes to me, God expects me to forgive him. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. And Peter said, how many times? He said, 70 times 7. So Peter was looking for a number of how many times we're going to do this, Lord. He was thinking maybe at least 490 times that I'm through with him. How many times then will the Lord forgive me? if I go back to him and ask him to forgive me. There's 365 days out of the year. Surely maybe you can get victory over one of those days at least, maybe. But you keep going and you asking him to forgive you, he'll be faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you and restore you back to fellowship. And then if you continue to walk in that direction without listening to those promptings from the Lord and the prayers of the saints and the warning from the preacher at your church, then God's going to be a little bit more severe with you. He's going to chasten you and discipline you to get your attention. One thing I have heard children of God say this. I'm talking about true children of God. They have told me, Brother Roger, I can't get away with anything. God sees what I'm doing. It seems like every time I get off track, God does something. And I know it's Him. And He corrects me. And He disciplines me. And the, fir- the more you bow up and the more you work against him, just like any rebellious child, the more severe he will become. The Lord's Supper is set up where that you would cleanse yourself between him, you and him, and also with your brethren. And he said, if you don't participate and you, do, you don't do that right, you don't do it righteously, he said, uh, some of you are going to wind up getting sick physically. Some of you are going to get weak, first of all, physically. Some of you are going to get sick physically. And some of you are going to die early. And according to 1 Corinthians 5, the young man that was having a relationship with his stepmother 
he encouraged the church to turn that young man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit, his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see, is it possible for a child of God to commit suicide? Let me just say this to you. I was asked that question in prison by those men. I said, let me put it to you this way. If Satan is allowed to destroy your flesh, he is a destroyer. And you give place to him, there is probably no limit what your mind would give in to in those moments in your life for your life to be taken early. So I'd have to say it's a possibility that you could get so out of, so out of shape that the Lord would allow the adversary to say, I don't think God would do that. Then just take your penknife. Take your scissors. Just cut out the pages that you don't like in your Bible. But God loves us. That is the extreme situation, an extreme case. God has no, takes no pleasure in cutting our life short. But did you just read in chapter 5 there where it says there is a sin unto death? At some point, a child of God may cut off some years of his life. You say, I know, I think everybody's days are numbered and you die, you die when you're supposed to and that's it. Well, again, you're showing your ignorance. There are people who die before their time. They do. And there are some people's lives who are taken by others before their time. But I will say this. There, there, is, there is victory in Christ. And our part is do not hide the sin. Do not pet it. Do not feed it like a serpent. Do not trust in it. Do not do that, but rather run from it, flee from it, mortify it, kill it, and say, God, I don't want this in my life. This is hideous to you. God, please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please wash me. Please restore me. God, give me victory over this in my heart and in my life. My mind. That's where it's going to start. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, it comes at all of us relentlessly. Some days worse than others. We're all sinners in here saved by grace. We're all heading in the same direction. Let's help each other to be overcomers. Let's restore one another. Let's pray one for another. We're not rock throwers. You understand what I mean by that? It's not our goal. Our goal is to save and restore and walk in victory. I will say this to you about preaching on sin. I thank God for the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. But in my studies, I, I got so much encouragement in studying on the subject of worship that I have on the subject of sin. Amen? To me, it's like the difference is in Brother Kenny working with these flowers out here and how the fragrance of those flowers can encourage a person. But over here, somebody's making a salad and they're cutting up the onions. And I feel like over here I'm cutting up onions. And it grieves me. It makes me sad. The more I study the subject, the more I realize how sinful I am and how holy God is. And how sinful we are and how much we need Jesus. The thing that discourages me probably more than anything, though, is your lack of response. Your lack of response to my warnings. 
not taking me seriously, not taking the Lord seriously is what I mean by that. I spend hours meditating and saying, Lord, how can I help him? And I think your face comes up and you're, my, I pray for you. I can see when you start drifting. And I can see your countenance and your attitude when you're not hungry anymore. I can see and know and hear things that you're doing that I don't want to hear. Sin's going to hurt all of us. We all have to deal with it. Please, don't invite it in. Don't play with it. You sons, it will directly impact your mother and father, your decisions. Daughters, your decisions directly impact your father, your mother, your grandparents. Well, that's all I need to say. Let's stand together.